Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, depending on where you are, and welcome to Your Personal Finance uh, with Dr. Charles Ross. I'm so excited to be with you. This is a show that learns and teaches you how to protect, how to budget protect, and invest, save your money. And uh, we have a special guest on today. All my guests are special, but my special guest on today is Rakim Sabri. I hope I said that right. He is an emerging leader in financial education and empowerment. And he is a TED speaker, two-time author of Mentorship, the Playbook, and Financially Irresponsible. And we'll be talking about those books, where these books address his passion on mentorship and financial literacy. He's a co-founder of the nonprofit and Extended Hand, Inc. Welcome to uh, your personal finance, Rakim. How are you this Thank evening? Thank you very much. Good, I'm well, good, how are good. You? I'm doing mighty fine, mighty fine. How are you surviving this uh, pandemic with uh, your speaking engagements? How, how are you conducting those kinds of things? Are you doing a uh, Zoom or or uh, Skype or what? How, how are you how are you doing those things? So I've I've pivoted a little bit, so I'm not doing so much speaking. I have uh, participated in interviews like this or other people's podcasts. But um, I've really been focusing on freelance writing um, since this COVID environment started. So I've been doing um, doing some articles for the Grio. Okay. All and, right. Yeah. Uh, I read the no, go ahead. And um, really, just kind of focusing on uh, building a brand through social media. So being really engaged, plugged in, um, still providing quality content and um, really dissecting the material that I, I tend to uh, kind of speak around. And, um, and I have that article. I read, I've read that article in the Grio, so we're going to talk about that in a little bit because that's interesting. I'm sure a lot of people, I don't know, I mean, I'm familiar with Rich Dad, uh, poor that I've been in this, this financial education literacy movement since 1982, you know, so, uh, and I'm very familiar with the book, and I have the book actually. And so we're going to talk about that in a little bit because a lot of people were shocked about his statement, you know. Um, 
So, yeah, so that's going to be interesting. Yeah, you know, so with social media, obviously with, um, with the Internet, social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all the other ones, it's just now it's so easy, you know, to uh, market your services or products. And, you know, with this pandemic over the last, what, three months, if you don't come out of this thing with a new skill, some more knowledge or a side hustle, then uh, something's wrong. Because you have the time now, because you can't go to the place I like. You know, you know, me and my wife and stuff. We we can't go to the things that we, we used to do: plays and movies and the theater and concerts and all that kind of good stuff. So um, you give you have some chance to get some stuff done. So where so where are you from? Where 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 are you originally from? So I grew up in Mount Vernon, New York. Okay. Uh, small town in Westchester County. Mm-hmm. Um, West Westchester, I guess, is considered the suburbs of the city. Mm-hmm. And uh, spent a majority of my life there. In 2010, I left New York with my mom. We went down to San Antonio, Texas, for about eight months, and mm-hmm. then came back up north to uh, the Hartford area of Connecticut, where I've been wow. ever since. Ever since. Okay. How do you like it up there? Uh, I don't mind it. I mean, it's definitely grown on me. There was a, a bit of a culture shock leaving New York and going down to mm-hmm. Texas. Um, and so coming back up north was a little bit reassuring. Uh, Connecticut, different from New York and, and certainly Westchester in that, you know, you can't really, I mean, there's there exists public transportation, but you can't really rely on public transportation. It kind of forces you to uh, get a vehicle. Um, so that was a change for me. The pace is a little different, but not, definitely not as slow as Texas. And, um, you know, just kind of getting used to the culture out here. It, it's not, you know, it's not too fast. It's not too slow. It's kind of like right in the middle there. So I like it. I mean, taxes are high. They tax you for everything here in Connecticut. But beyond that, um, you know, I, I think I've done well for myself in the time that I've been here. I don't know that I would want to stay here forever. But um, okay. I've been here for, I think, the better part of 10 years now. And you, you left out one important thing. It's cold. Up there. <laughs> I know that is shock. cold. It <laughs> <laughs> is cold, but uh, I mean the 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 weather is, is similar to New York weather. Um, you have that New England um, snow and, and winter, and then you have you know your regular summers. But yes, it is cold. That that's probably one of the uh, up there at the top of the list is one of the motivators to kind of get out, <laughs> get away from the snow and the. Uh, <laughs> That's uh, awesome, awesome. So, uh, so how did you get into uh, financial education, empowerment, literacy? How did you How did you get into that? So, there's a combination of things, really. Uh, I like to say osmosis being one of them. I started working in banking when I was 21 years old, and you just you know you kind of have to learn the systems and the products and, you know, how to speak intelligently to customers, clients around, you know, the products that the bank offers. But with that, having some context to understand how they, um, the customer manages their own personal finances. So um, definitely a lot of osmosis activity happened there and being able to see really what the spectrum looks like between individuals who are commanding significant wealth and individuals who aren't. Um, But also 
I um, encountered the book Rich Dad Poor Dad, which, you know, I know we're going to spend some time talking about a little bit later. And, um, you know, I, I read the book and was just completely amazed by the way that the material was broken down and delivered, became inspired to um, expand on the knowledge that I had gained and just became consumed by it. So, you know, you're looking at almost 10 years in the future, I have had a succession of experiences and educational opportunities, whether that be on the job, outside of the job, um, you know, through my own independent learning, reading, participating in seminars, workshops. Um, And that was really kind of self-serving, I think, in that, you know, I realized there was certainly an opportunity for me to, A, become aware of my finances, B, um, be in control of it, and then certainly direct what that trajectory looked like in terms of building wealth. But as I developed and learned, I realized, you know, some of my conversations were becoming more sophisticated. And the people that I was talking to didn't know, you know, what this product was or why people use this vehicle. And I was just like, well, this is a good opportunity for me to share what I know. And so I became charged, um, really kind of feeling responsible for, for giving back and sharing what it is that I had learned on my journey with others. And that's where the education piece came in. Um, I like to say the empowerment piece is relatively recent in um, distinguishing financial literacy or financial education from empowerment because I've realized that it's one thing to, um, you know, be an academic when it comes to these processes, right, and managing your money and what these products are and, you know, can you talk about what the makeup of FICO score is and so on and so forth. But it's another thing to execute on that. And what I find is a huge barrier to success in executing on good financial practices has um, a lot to do with what you believe about what you're capable of um, financially or otherwise. And then um, how you, how you motivate yourself, how do you, um, develop discipline to execute on those strategies and a lot of people I think know what they should be doing um, but they don't do it and so you know yeah I know I should save more and I should stop spending but you know this is convenient this is here in front of me I'll get around to it or I know I should fix my credit or I know you know there's a lot of like I know I know I know I know and not a lot of accountability. And so that empowerment piece really kind of speaks to uh, taking action, understanding that, you know, moving away from uh, um, a scarcity mindset, moving away from, you know, limiting beliefs around what's possible for you as an individual, um, what your contribution to your family is, what your contribution to your community is, and, um, and, and, you know, just taking charge, going after it. So I spend a lot of time, I think I've developed somewhat of a niche within a niche in that there's a lot of financial educators out there and they're talking about, you know, products, they're talking about services, they're talking about strategies and methodologies, but there's not a lot of people talking about the mentality. And so um, I've, I've had relative success there, you know, speaking to people about what are their anxieties and fears and doubts and concerns around building wealth and really kind of pulling back the layers of um, what that looks like, particularly in the black community and other minority communities where, you know, 
and, and especially in today's age where we're stirring up the awareness around, um, you know, structuralized or institutionalized racism and the practices that really kind of act as barriers to uh, our success financially. So what what that's one thing we have in common out of you know New York uh, is working in banking. I spent ten years in, uh, right out of college in banking. Ended up to, as vice president of investments for uh, the top bank here in Georgia, and my branch was in an area called Buckhead, uh, and it was a very wealthy area. And uh, the things I learned from my clients that would come in and ask at that time, I guess, who, wow, I was probably maybe 27, 28, 29 year old and asking me for advice about what to do with their money. And one of the things that I found, and I don't know if this was your experience, is that just because someone is good at making money, because this is an area where houses were a million dollars and up. And this is back in the 80s, okay? Uh, Tyler Perry uh, had a home in, in that area that was like $20 million, $30 million, something like that. And so I'd have these uh, folks come in to, you know, with uh, my uh, investment advisors that I had on my staff and, and asking us for advice, and they were making, you know, millions and millions of dollars. And they would come in and ask for advice. And one of the things I learned is that just because you're good at making money doesn't mean that you're good at managing money and what to do with it. What did you find out in working in the banking arena and working with clients that were, you know, successful with uh, making money? Did you find something similar? Absolutely. Um, I, I also worked in several what we consider mass affluent environments, and so um, certainly high-income earners, you know, you have your doctors, your lawyers, your accountants, um, you know, really educated professionals who make a lot of money but have poor money management practices, and then mm-hmm. also people who, um, you know, they're born into money. Like, there's generational money in their families, and so they're not touching their money. They have people managing their money for them. And what happens in those instances a lot of times is they just have no idea what's going on because all they know is somebody's managing their money, they're allocating them, you know, whatever their spending budget is, and, you know, they can pretty much do whatever they want. So definitely um, eye-opening in that when you hear the term financial literacy, most people are going to assume that that applies to individuals who are poor experiencing poverty. But what I've found in, in that environment or that arena is that, you know, financial literacy is for everybody. And certainly individuals who are high-income earners have demonstrated that they don't have financial literacy, whether that be in the areas of credit or um, budgeting or um, saving, because, you know, they don't feel like they have a need to save. They have, you know, so much money that it can be sustained. But I've seen nightmares occur in those environments too so uh, let's say that a succession plan was not you know carefully crafted and you know the breadwinner of the household passes away so now you know the next dependent spouse is left with all of this money and all of these bills but no knowledge of how to make that connection and so really just kind of lost and like well how do I do this 
like, you know, have to take up this mantle and you see, you know, adult individuals, middle-aged adult individuals confused about how to pay a bill or something as simple as a credit card or a phone bill or their mortgage. And so then there's education happening on that front. So I like to say financial education or financial literacy is for everyone, um, not just poor people. And that uh, poor people in particular, although um, not fortunate in that they're commanding a large income, can certainly uh, navigate their financial kind of situation because they know where their money's going. They just they don't have enough of it to to do the things that they need to do the way that they want to. And that's it. And it's interesting because. Uh, I remember hearing a, a quote that's in line with what we're talking about, and it said Michelle Obama said something to the effect that I, she's been around a lot of uh, wealthy folks, very successful businessmen, and uh, athletes, entertainers, whatever. And he said, and she said, you know, you would think because of where they are that they're very smart, but that's not necessarily the case because how they got their money could vary from where. You know, was given to them, they inherited it, or they came up with a product that you know took off. They started a company and things like that. Because now, and I get concerned because uh, you know financial literacy is not taught in the schools, and so no matter where you end up in life, whether you're a, you know somebody as a blue collar worker or a professional, it doesn't matter. You're gonna to have to know how to manage your money, what to do with it, or else you'll lose it really quick. And I really get concerned about people, well, I get concerned about everybody right now who's trying uh, to move towards retirement because what, is they, what are they going to do? Because, you know, back in the day, they had pensions, and now pensions re- were replaced with 401Ks and 403Bs. And so, you know, the concern is that it's almost like you give a child, a, a teenager, the keys to the car, but they never, they don't have a license. You never taught them how to drive. And so they've given these people 401Ks and 403Bs and all these other financial instruments, but have never taught them how to use it. So you've got to, you know, listen to guys like you, like me, uh, books out there in order to get help. And, you know, that's a real challenge. So you deal with any of that in your discussion in terms of financial literacy and education, to how to deal, because that's the big thing. Everybody's going to have to retire at some point, and you're seeing many folks now uh, working up until into their 70s, because not because they want to, because they have to, because Social Security's not not going to be enough, and so they've got to keep working. Do you address any of that in your in your TED talks or any other speaking engagements and things like that? Uh, I do touch on it briefly in my book, but I don't spend a lot of time on you know, what that looks like, because for me, it's all theory, right? Like, I, um, I've not experienced it. So my target audience when I'm speaking usually is addressing the millennial demographic and maybe the Gen Z demographic, um, just because I am where they are. However, okay. I do see the value and understand the importance of kind of emphasizing what does that uh, long-term planning look like and how do you plan for retirement and um, understanding that your 401k very often is not going to be enough. And so using that as one tool and a collection of many tools 
to kind of augment what your um, future looks like in terms of income and expenses. Uh, as far as individuals who are approaching retirement age and, um, you know, kind of looking for advice, I I do give commentary uh, here and there. I'm certainly familiar with the retirement vehicles and, um, you know, what's involved as far as contributions and withdrawals and penalties and taxes and how to avoid taxes on it. But um, it, it doesn't dominate a majority of my conversation. Um, but something interesting that you said, um, you know, with current events that I think is important to touch on, too, is that with, you know, COVID-19, the, uh, the CARES Act made it basically uh, permissible for you to access retirement savings if you're having uh, financial difficulties due to COVID, which, yes. um, you know, it, it's kind of scary when you think about it because now you're interrupting the flow of what your compounding looks like over time if you touch that money. Um, and certainly if you take it out due to need now, you, you know, you're kind of robbing Peter to pay Paul in that, yeah, you're covering things now, but, you know, when you get down the line into the future, what does that look like for you? So um, I spend a lot more time talking about, again, mentality and, um, you know, your approach to what wealth building looks like than I do um, talking about the specifics of what you should invest in and, and, and how to invest because I'm not licensed to talk about those items, but I'm a huge advocate for the retirement vehicles. My favorite vehicles to talk about are the uh, Roth IRA and the HSA plan um, for healthcare expenses, you know, later on in life. But um, certainly there's a, there's, there's definitely a, a place and value in talking about the traditional IRA and the 401k as a tool, again, for um, kind of augmenting that scenario. In in looking at you know um, like you said the millennials that's a, that's a good uh, group that's coming up that needs to be addressed because of you know the things that they're going to have to do and you know a lot of them are not thinking those things and and I, I guess what I hear you saying is that you're trying to get their minds right uh, I guess about looking at their financial situation and what they what they should be doing in terms of their overall financial outlook and and that's a good thing because you got to get your mind right to understand that hey I've got to take control of my financial future I've got to get my mind right you know uh, meaning I have to educate myself about the things I should be doing and then of course obviously being empowered I want to switch a little bit and we'll come back to your your other book financially irresponsible now you've written a book on mentorship talk about what prompted you to write that book what, what what in your past or present or just your future, I guess, that led you to write a book about mentorship? It's a good question. Um, so growing up, I always knew that I wanted to write a book. I didn't know what I wanted to write about or what I would be able to write about. And at the time, I was experiencing um, a very difficult time in my life. Mentally, emotionally, I was experiencing depression. And um, I needed a way to kind of help navigate and cope with those experiences. And I was always a big journaler growing up. And so a friend of mine 
had suggested that I write down my feelings or write down what was going on with me. And um, I went with it. You know, she said to me, you, you have a story to tell, so you should tell that story. And so I started writing the book with the sole intention of just getting words down on the page. I did not have any intentions on distributing it or sharing it with anybody. But as I navigated through the different scenarios and the different stories, I realized that there were teachable moments in those stories. And in those teachable moments that somebody else very likely had experienced or will experience something similar. So I structured the book as kind of like a memoir slash self-help book in that I'm speaking in two voices as the mentor in, in terms of, you know, what what a mentor is looking for from their mentee, but also as the mentee in that very often uh, individuals who are being mentored don't know, you know, what is it they're looking for. They just know that they want to, they want a mentor. And in establishing that relationship, they take a very passive role in just kind of looking for the mentor to come up with content or ideas around how to guide and navigate them. And I challenge the readers in this book to um, the mentee demographic to own the relationship just as much as the mentor does in saying, you know, this is what I need from you. This is what I'm looking for from you. And so at the end of each chapter, I have a call to action that speaks to um, you as a mentor or you as a mentee and how to maximize the effectiveness of that relationship and um, really advocating for mentorship to occur frequently, particularly in, in young men and, and men in general. Um, really speaking to the older man demographic and saying, hey, like there's, there's young people that need you, but speaking to the young man demographic and saying there's people out there who can help you. Um, and I like to look back on, you know, both bodies of work and, and thinking that, you know, they're very different, but there is an element that allows them to intertwine. Um, and so in delivering my TED Talk, I talk about the financial literacy gap and my suggestion around how to close that gap focuses on building a team. And that team can be financial professionals like real estate agents, financial advisors, lenders, um, CPAs, but that team can also be individuals who just have experience in that arena, who can speak to what that looks like. And that to me is mentoring too. Um, you know, when you allow somebody to have an influence over the way you think or your behavior or the way you act, all of those things, I think, um, can really define what is mentorship. It's interesting you mentioned mentorship. You know, we talk about that because one of in my quote day job as an educator, uh, I'm not in the classroom anymore, but. I mentor, I have a caseload of about 40 to 50 students. And in that uh, relationship, the best way I've been able to explain to them our relationship is I'm your mentor. And these are for males and females. And I deal with three areas, attendance, uh, making sure they come to school, making sure that they have their behaviors right. So I deal with behavior. And then finally, I deal with academics, making sure that uh, they get the work done and they keep their grades up. 
And so the mentorship has really been, and this is later in life because I've never really mentored anybody. And, you know, I'm going to look at your book because that's something that I can share with them so we can have a, a common dialogue about what that entails. And what I have found is that, you know, being a black male and an older black male at that is that, you know, they don't have those type of relationships in their life. A lot of times their dad is not in their life, and this is for boys and girls. And so a lot of times I have to teach them how to interact with them, interact with me, you know, in terms of, you know, I'm not your bud, I'm not your buddy, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm your mentor. And I'm going to tell you the things that are going to help you be successful, not only in school, but in life. Because, you know, I've got grown daughters, you know, my oldest daughter's 38, you know, so I, I, I know what it takes to be successful. And do you find in, in, in talking about mentorship that that's an issue in terms of, you know, and I'm talking about urban kids and I'm in a high poverty school. Do you have that as an issue in terms of what, you, what you're seeing out there in terms of that relationship with, uh, with a men, mentor, mentor, a mentee and a mentor? Um, I don't know that I would use the word issue so much as I would lack of awareness. So I, I certainly can respect the traditional definition of what mentorship looks like, but I redefine mentorship in my book as um, really occurring between anybody that you allow to have that kind of influence. And so I challenge young people to view their friends as mentors, right, because if you're spending, you know, all of your free time with your friend and your friend tells you, hey, let's go out and get into trouble, well, they're mentoring you. They're just they're just being a negative mentor. Um, they're teaching you things, but, you know, it may not be conducive to your growth. And so being conscious of that and being conscious of who you allow to have that influence is, is equally as important as, I think, going out and finding a mentor. And I think, um, you know, the second part to my answer, you know, more specifically addressing your question is I think there's a reluctance to um, to engage, especially when there is uh, a gap in age or a gap in experiences in that, you know, well, we don't have anything in common or we don't have many things in common. So how am I going to approach this individual to get really the benefit of who they are without, um, you know, just, first of all, dealing with rejection, but also, um, you know, feeling silly or, or, or stupid. And then on the other side of the, the coin, you have the adult mentors who, you know, how do I relate to young people? How do I get their attention, keep their attention, and hold them accountable in a way that doesn't turn them off? Because I think uh, the millennial, I mean, the millennials, we're getting older, so not so much the millennials, but definitely the Gen Z uh, demographic really has demonstrated a lot of self-sufficiency in that technology has evolved so much that, you know, companionship is, is, is happening through the Internet. It's happening through applications and devices. You don't have to be sitting in front of or next to the person that you're interacting with, but you can be interacting with the same person or group of people all day. And so um, with the Internet and, you know, being in the age of information, there's just there's so much at your fingertips as a young person, so much unfiltered information at your fingertips as a young person that, you know, you 
without the right guidance can certainly jump to your own conclusions about what things mean or how to interpret different things. And, you know, if, if the only leadership or guidance that you have is somebody who is sharing in your experience and your um, age range, then I think that could be catastrophic as well. So do you, do you, uh, or let me make, make uh, clear how I understand you see mentorship and maybe you see it two different ways. Are you talking about a peer-to-peer mentor uh, or a, you know, peer to an adult? I mean, so in your book, are you talking about, because you mentioned how a friend could be a mentor, you know, to you, you know, and um, so is that the exclusive definition in in your book or you kind of go between both both areas? So I define mentorship as, um, you know, anybody who you choose to have an influence over your thoughts, behaviors, okay. actions, beliefs. So that that really extends in any direction, right? That can be um, an older individual. That can be somebody your age. That can be somebody younger than you. I talk about reverse mentorship and what that looks like. Um, so it, it's a very abstract concept, which I think is appropriate because um, it kind of breaks down the, uh, the walls of of you know what traditional mentorship looks like and um and really kind of opens it up for more dialogue around you know how to be a better mentor i think when you put young people in a position of authority and and power and they recognize that a lot of times they'll rise to the occasion right if you say you know hey you 16 year old you're going to mentor this 12 year old they're going to try to do their best, um, and their best may not be the best um, that you can do uh, as an adult, but it's certainly going to be better than um, their just kind of disregard for or um, lack of passion around interacting with other people or, or even themselves. So you mentioned two categories, demographics, uh, Generation Z, Gen Z, and Millennial. What's the age range for those for for uh, Generation Z? What's the age range for for? A I believe Gen Z starts at um, people born after ninety six, so nineteen ninety seven through um, present. Really, I don't know that there has been. Uh, defined generation after Gen Z, but um, millennials through present. Millennials, I believe, and the the number changes from time to time. But I think millennials start at eighty five through ninety six. Okay, all right. So yeah, I'm just saying because my daughters are, are millennials, and I'm just <laughs> what they are. Yeah. My daughters. Yeah. Are, uh, uh, well, no, see, yeah, well, no, one of my daughters uh, was the 82, 90, and 92. So they're kind of crossing. Gen- I have some generations. I have most well, see, 82 would be. Well, I see even not. She'd be she'd be outside of uh, my oldest daughter. So I don't even know what that is. But, uh, yeah, it's interesting because, you know, going back, well, you know, we're going to start back up in, here in Atlanta uh, at the end of, Ju- of July. And I know perhaps you've seen the uh, video and news reports about that uh, uh, fast food restaurant, Wendy's, that was on fire. Did you, did you see that or hear about that? Yep. 
No, okay. My school is two blocks from that Wendy's. And I would go to lunch at that Wendy's uh, at least once a week. And several of my parents, uh, several of my students' parents worked there. And so now it's going to be challenging, you know, to, as I mentor these kids, to deal with, uh, you know, the impact that that's going to have on their lives. And, uh, and we went down there on Sunday and protested. And I was, I was surprised I, was going to, I didn't see any of my students or parents down there. But one of my other teachers told me that one of their, uh, one of his uh, students was down there. So, you know, in this day and age, it's there's so much influence, like you said, that, you know, so much is available via the web and on their phones. That when I was growing up, stuff that you would have to get access behind a lunch counter, <laughs> now you can get access on your phone. So there's so much information out there that's a good thing, but there's also uh, obviously information that, that's out there that is not so good. Do you deal with that kind of stuff, making choices about how they spend their time in social media? Because it's it's addictive, you know. Uh, I have to limit my social media interaction because I read a lot, and a lot of the stuff I read comes from my, my the groups I'm in and the things that I subscribe and set up to. Do you talk about any of that? Because that's really impacting a lot of kids, especially school-age kids and college-age kids, let alone young adults. Do you, do you deal with any of that? I don't, um, but that that's a good angle for me to, to start looking at when I have those conversations. So the way that I structure my uh, book is based off of my experiences. So I am kind of really walking you through my uh, experiences and relationships from probably around the age of 12 through, um, I want to say maybe 26, 27. Mm-hmm. And, um, and talking about the different relationships that I've had and how those relationships have impacted me, right? So I talk about, um, you know, being in middle school and high school and, and different friends that I've had and how, because, you know, I've defined mentorship as somebody that you've allowed to have an influence over your thoughts. Um, The different friends that I've had and how our relationships have taught me different things or I have taught them different things and create lessons out of them. So at that particular point in time in life, the Internet and social media wasn't as well developed as it is now. Um, I think we were just at the beginning of what that looked like. Um, I remember what the first version of Facebook looked like, and it's completely different than what Facebook looked like. Facebook looks like today. There was no Absolutely. Instagram. Um, right. I remember when Twitter came about. There was certainly no TikTok, and um, and we had a dial-up internet connection. So you know you had to wait for a few minutes before you can get access to um, a full-page view on a website. Now everything is so fast and so instant. Um, it's just like, you know, the, the microwave generation um, is, is Gen Z, right? They grew up on the Internet. We grew up with the Internet. And um, the generation before us, you know, just they started seeing analog turn into digital. So um, to answer your question, no, I don't specifically speak about social media and, and you know, kind of segmenting or monitoring your time there. But um, I don't well, really get too deep into um disciplines or practices either. It's kind of very abstract guidelines for how to navigate the relationship as a mentor and a mentee, more so than 
um, you know, here are some activities that you guys can do or things that you guys can address. Well, we're going to take a break, and I'm going to play a two-minute segment from my vignette on uh, called Your Personal Finance. On the other side of this, uh, I want to talk about, you know, you mentioned FICO scores and how that's calculated, some barriers to financial success, and then talk about your book, Financially Irresponsible. So we're going to take a break for about two minutes and come back. You own the business, but employees and suppliers alike can help it succeed. Find out how on today's Your Personal Finance. Uh-huh. A classic story of boy meets girl. Two people at a diner soon discover they share an interest in something other than coffee. So what do you like best about your Dodge Neon? Lots of stuff. Like? I love the 16-valve single overhead cam. Excuse me? Or maybe the electronic fuel injection. How about the hype sound system? Or the power windows. And the power locks. They're good. But what I really like is Neon's power Mm. to turn heads. (laughs) How about another cup of coffee? No. How about a drive? Drive. Now you can drive the head-turning neon for less than you probably expect. Get one all dressed up with lots of extras, including 15-inch wheels or an alarm system. Dodge Neon. Different. Now at a friendly Dodge dealer near you. Small business owners enjoy the feeling of independence and self-reliance. But your employees and your suppliers can be valuable allies in making it successful. Teach employees how the health of the company affects them. If the company is not making money, nobody has job security. Get them involved. If you are too small for a profit sharing or a 401k plan, involve your employees by getting their input on relevant matters. They are the ones who best know what's happening at the cash register or on the production line. Your suppliers can help too. Ask them about early payment discounts and even small breaks on prices. Get your suppliers to deliver inventory when you need it. This saves you money on inventory costs. For your personal finance, I'm Charles Ross. And we're back talking with uh, Rakim Sabri. He's a financial uh, educator and uh, leads an organization that deals with financial empowerment, a nonprofit called An Extended Hand. And he joins us uh, by so you uh, did a TED Talk. Uh, how long ago was that, the TED Talk? Uh, that was in December of last year. So uh, I believe the, the TED Talk was December 4th, 2019. Okay. Yeah. So, so how did that come about? You mean, did they, you know, how does that? I, I'd always wondered about TED Talks, uh, how people get invited to do that stuff. You know, how did, how did that come about? Um, so I like telling this story because um, I like to kind of sprinkle a little bit of the uh, law of attraction, if you will, and manifestation. So I started in 2018 after I published my book. I started um, developing an interest or really executing on an interest that had been developed in the public speaking space. And I knew that because I was a new author and I was a newer speaker that um, credibility had not been established for me yet. And I wanted to get to a point of credibility very quickly. So in thinking about how to make that happen, I figured, well, Ted is a very reputable brand. 
and that if I can get um, my name associated with Ted, then boom, instant credibility. So I started looking at um, opportunities to participate in TED and found that there was a local organization um, that TED has licensed its name to, uh, so it's TEDx in the area. And I reached out to the organizers and was just like, how do I get involved with this? And they told me that applications were closed for the current year, but to be on the lookout for applications in the following year. Um, so this is 2019. So I went to all of their social medias, I followed them, I turned on post notifications just so that as soon as they made the announcement, I was aware. But the exercise that I did um, and, and the story that I like to tell is at the end of every year for me, I reflect on the year, um, what I've accomplished, what I wanted to accomplish, but then quite accomplished, and then what it is that I want to accomplish in the following year. And one of the things that I wrote down that I wanted to accomplish in the following year was deliver a TED Talk. So fast forward to um, the applications, I applied, they reached out to me, there was a series of auditions that took place. Um, mm. They liked my concept, they liked uh, the delivery, and they really helped kind of mold and refine what that looked like. And so fast forward to the end of our um, practice period, we uh it, it's game time we you know we're, we're there we do a dress rehearsal just before the event and um have to say i don't usually get nervous or that nervous speaking in front of a group of people but i was terrified like it was like the worst nerves that i had experienced because i think for me i just i wanted to do a really good job i knew that this was something that was going to be recorded it was going to be put on youtube that you know it would be just kind of cemented into the world of the internet and I just I want to do a really good job but I also have been working on my second book and so ironically um, I published my second book the day before I delivered the TED talk um, and that, I, I say ironically um, half jokingly because it was very strategic in that I wanted anybody who was impressed by my TED talk and decided that they wanted to look me up to see that I had just published a book on a similar topic and um, that was part of my marketing strategy so um, so yeah that I went, I delivered my talk I uh, can't say that it was flawless but I did the best to make it look flawless um, and had a really good turnout I'm very proud of participating um, not everybody gets selected, there was over a hundred applicants and they had to make a decision of um, eight people and so um, through their audition process and you know whatever their criteria was around kind of picking who they wanted to pick they picked me and uh, you know I'm happy to, to be able to kind of cross that notch off and say hey like this is something that I've done and it did it served its purpose uh, gave me a huge boost in credibility anytime I introduce myself now um, you know that really kind of leads in the introduction and people are like, wow, you know, Ted, how'd you get that done? Where is it? Is it on YouTube? And, um, you know, if you go into YouTube and you type in my name, my TED talk will pop up. So I think that's pretty awesome. cool. Awesome. What was your topic? What did you talk about? 
Uh, my talk was called Financial Empowerment is a Team Sport, and I talked about how um, the financial literacy gap exists, and, and my um, approach to closing that gap was um, building a team. So I kind of talked about that a little bit earlier, um, where, you know, I, I talk about my experiences growing up in poverty, um, not really believing that it was possible for me to accomplish certain things financially. Uh, not really, uh, let me take a step back. It's not that I didn't believe that, I just didn't think to want to accomplish those things. So to give some concrete examples, I um, when I delivered my TED Talk, I talked about how I had an 800 credit score. I talked about how I purchased my first house at 26. I talked about... Um, you know, saving and investing. And so all of these things are, are foreign concepts to a lot of people, specifically at that age. Um, and so, you know, how did I do that? How was I able to do that? Especially, you know, coming up in an environment that, um, you know, didn't, wasn't really conducive to that. And you know, I talk about, you know, leaving New York and coming into Connecticut and surrounding myself with individuals who had accomplished that and developing this hunger and this drive to go out and accomplish those things and figure out what's the strategy, what's the roadmap, how do I execute on that, and maintaining disciplines until I was able to accomplish those things. And um, and my success, as much as it was driven by um, my disciplines and my um, internal motivation, was also driven by the collection of individuals that I had, you know, surrounded myself with, financial professionals, um, individuals that I had interacted with while I was working in banking, um, personal friends who had done what it is that I wanted to accomplish. And so I, I um, in my talk with a call to action in that I tell people that they need to um, reach out and teach others, or if they don't know, that they should then seek out people that do know and take it upon themselves to learn. And, you know, one of the things you mentioned, you know, since we're talking about financial literacy, for a couple of years, I wrote a column for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And in one column, I uh, asked my readers, I said, should students in high school have to take a class on personal finance and pass it in order to graduate? 95% of the responses said yes. Think about that for a second. Take a course on personal finance and pass it in order to graduate. And, you know, and of course, we don't have in Georgia, they used to have a law. And I don't, some countries, I'm sorry, some states have laws where personal finance is mandated, and many do not. You know, so financial literacy is so, so, so important. With that being said, your book, Financially Irresponsible, what, what is that about? What is that book about? Uh, so it's a combination, really, of introducing financial terms and concepts to individuals who would otherwise not have had that exposure, but also focusing on the mindset, and actually it's in a reverse order. So the first half of my book, is focused on your spiritual and mental relationship with money. Um, the first chapter specifically of my book is called uh, Money is Not the Root of All Evil. And so I start unpacking 
the um, maybe uh, subconscious guilt that a lot of people experience through the misinterpretation of uh, Bible scripture that says um, the love of money is the root of all evil. And um, I challenge people with a different scripture from Matthew um, by sharing the story of the Ten Talents and saying that not only is it um, not evil for you to want to acquire money, but it is an obligation for you to grow the opportunities that you have before you in building wealth. And as I continue um, through the first part of my book, I talk about, um, you know, some of the things that I think really kind of plague um, black people in particular, but um, minority people in general around their mindset going into um, building wealth, talking about things like generational curses, talking about um, the fear of success, talking about uh, self-fulfilling prophecies, and, and, and building people up psychologically to then be able to receive the information in the second part of the book that really focuses on disciplines and concepts like we were talking about with retirement planning, estate planning, a succession planning, um, how do you pay yourself first, what is a credit score, um, and I use stories from you know my personal experiences to kind of illustrate those points um, so that it's not really like a dense kind of boring book, but more so just like a collection of experiences where I'm like, hey, like I've done it, you can do it too. Uh, and so my strategy in writing it was really to not necessarily present myself as somebody who has arrived or somebody who is a guru, but somebody who's riding the same bus that you are, who's going through the same obstacles and and and, um, and barriers to success that you are, but sharing what my cheat codes were and are and navigating through those things. Because I think a lot of time, particularly in the black community, we focus on what we can't do. And not enough time do we focus on what we can do or how do we navigate around that. Um, and so we beat up on concepts like capitalism and um, we, we, we pull ourselves out of business ownership, entrepreneurship, because, you know, it's difficult. It is, and it is difficult. You know, that's the reality of the situation. But I don't believe, or I'm not a part of the school of thought that says that, you know, you have to resign to that or that you have to be um, broke, essentially, to be somebody who is principled or moral. I think you can do more for your community, for your family, for yourself from a position of wealth than you can from a position of poverty. And so I encourage people to be empowered and to build wealth so that they can then change the structures that um, create barriers to success, particularly financially. And it's interesting because, uh, you know, there's, you mentioned the scripture, and I've you know, written two books. One of the books, my first book was called Your Common Sense Guide to Personal Financial Planning. And then the second one is called God's Plans for Your Family. And it deals with the scripture part of and that I pick on is in Joshua 8, 
meditated on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. I mean, we'll do a whole hour or two, a whole day on what that means. But one of the things that before we go, I only have about three or four minutes, and I think this might be the most important part of the show, and you mentioned the FICO score. And things, I'm sure you uh, are versed in the things that make up that score. Can you share the things, I think there's four or five things that make your credit score? Because a lot of people don't understand that. And that's, you know, you got to be able to play the game. And, you know, whether you don't, you know, debate whether it's a game, but you got to know how that impacts you. mentioned you had an 800 uh, credit score, and, and that's great. You can buy anything you want. So can you share in, in just a couple of minutes how a final score is calculated? Sure. Um, and you'll have to forgive me because I don't remember the specific percentages, but I can tell you that the FICO score is made up of your credit utilization, which is a large part of what determines your score. So if you have credit cards specifically and your utilization is higher than 30%, it's going to start weighing against you negatively. I think when, when people who don't understand credit take out credit cards, they think, well, I'm entitled to use the full limit of this card. And that's certainly true. But in using the full limit of that card, you are doing yourself a disservice. Um, so there's there's uh, credit utilization. There's credit history. So what is the length of time that you've been managing credit? Um, and a lot of people who are coming into credit new, uh, who don't have generations of experience with credit, don't realize the biggest hack to establishing that credit history is piggybacking on somebody else's credit who has established history. And so what you'll see a lot of times in um, affluent communities is that the children are added as authorized users to their parents' cards at a young age, 16, 17, 18, so that when they're ready to apply for credit on their own, they have credit history. They're not starting with a blank slate. Um, credit inquiries probably has the lowest impact, which certainly does, and that speaks to how many times you're pulling credit. So, um, you know, when you go out into the retail stores like Macy's and uh, I mean, I think by the time this broadcast, a lot of the retail stores are, are outdated or not here anymore, but um, they're always offering you a credit card for that 20% discount on your first purchase. And if you're applying for every one of those cards, well, you're running a credit inquiry each time. And so that's negatively impacting you. You want to keep your credit limp, your credit inquiries low. I would say maybe two to three for the period of time that it's reportable, which is about two years. Then there's your payment history, which also plays a huge role in determining what your FICO score is. So making sure that your payments are on time and regular, um, that you don't have any delinquencies and they're certainly not going beyond 30 days late on any credit obligation. And then um, your credit mix, which is also important. I think a lot of people don't realize um, you need to have more than just a credit card. You need to have revolving credit, which is what your credit cards are but you also need to have installment credit. So that's your traditional loan, whether that be a mortgage or a personal loan or a car loan. Um, you want to have some history there of paying your installment loan um, in addition to, the, of course, the credit cards. 
And I think I covered all of them. Um, yeah, the big two I think are the thirty-five percent is your payment history. Thirty percent is your, as you mentioned, your uh, percentage of your credit limits. Uh, so that comprises 65% of how your score is calculated. And then it's like 15% for length of credit, 10% for credit inquiries, and 10% for types of credit. So that's that's a great thing. Before we go, we want to give people a chance to find you, find you and your books. And do you want to share your contact information so people can find you if they need to? Sure. Uh, so my website is rockhimsabri.com. That's R-A-H-K-I-M. S-A-B, like boy, R and two E's, dot com. From there, all of my social media is linked. My books are present. Um, but if you just want to Google, search my name, Rakim Sabri, R-A-H-K-I-M-S-A-B-R-E-E, you'll see the books, you'll see the website, you'll see interviews that I've done, articles that I've published, really anything out there. I have a pretty unique name, so you're not going to have a lot of overlap. <laughs> well, Rakim, thank you so much for being on your personal finance. Much success to you. You know, um, I'm going to get your books and uh, put that into my uh, library along with the other thousand I have. <laughs> so I uh, thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, I got a thousand books. Thank I just you. Bought, fact, it was so funny. I thought I bought about 20 books during this pandemic to read. So <laughs> my wife, every time nice. someone comes to the door and they're delivering the books, she gives me the side eye. I said, well, you married a man that, you know, you wanted a man with a big head, you know, got all this knowledge. Where do you think I get it from? I got to read <laughs> Well, thank you. It's been a joy to have you on your personal finance. Much success to you, sir. All right? Take care. And thank I'm you. going to send you, you I'm going to send you the link on how you can listen to this uh, broadcast, okay? Fantastic. Thank you. All right. Take care, man. Well, that was a great show all about – there's a lot of folks. Let me tell you something. When back in 1986 oh, – actually, 85, 86, anyway, you know, I was one of the few. And I'm just saying this to pat myself on the back. I'm just sharing the reality. There were not many folks out there in the financial education arena. And uh, and now I am, excuse me, so excited to see young brothers like this and sisters that I've had on the show that are taking up that torch and, and moving that thing down down the road. It's just so exciting, you know, to see that and because uh, it's all kind of folks out there doing some great stuff. Because the the pond is big, and when I say the pond, there's uh, 240 million people, or 300, whatever the amount of Americans, and uh, 30 or 40 million African Americans. So the pond is big, and I'm just excited to feature these folks on the show. Because when I started in '86 with my syndicated show, Your Personal Finance, and the books I wrote, stuff, there wasn't that much competition, and I'm just excited to have the competition, be able to share things. Because when you get down to it. We're all kind of saying the same thing. <laughs> we really are. And so it's just so refreshing. But sometimes a different voice, you know, is needed. You know, this brother talks to the Generation Z and millennials. You know, I'm not sure if I can reach those folks. I, I don't know. But a brother like this who's young, you know, energetic, motivated, you know, doing stuff is just so exciting to do. I just wanted to, to share that part. Now, as uh, – some of you may know that one of the things that I provide is uh, a service to help people manage their money and get their act together. 
Uh, it's a program called Financial Education Services, and this program uh, allows you to be able to manage your money. In other words, to be able to make sure that, number one, you can do the financial things like uh, putting together a budget, saving your money, tracking your net worth, um, de uh, de developing wills and trusts. And then on the other side, on the credit side, restoring your credit, building your credit, monitoring your credit, making sure you can pay off your debts, identity, theft, you know, insurance. And so if you're interested in that, then all you have to do is give me a call or text me at 404-272-4633. That's right, 404-272-4633. Or if you like to do it via email, then it's real simple, charlesross at outlook.com. That's simple, isn't it? Charles Ross at Outlook.com. Now, uh, I'm working on my website, and it'll be up hopefully the next week or so, and uh, I'll be able to share that information as well. Uh, I'm so excited to be back in the game uh, with this pandemic. As I said before, if you don't, if you come out of this pandemic with not, with, you don't have a new skill, you don't have more knowledge, or a side hustle something wrong okay because you have the time I know my wife and I we have the time because we can't go out and boogaloo <laughs> we can't go out to the movies we can't go out to the theater we can't go to concerts we can't go you know to the beach you know, all, we, we're sequestered at home for the most part and so I just think that you know as I shared and is that in this pandemic uh, I've started this broadcast three, day, three times a week. I've had some great guests on this show. And, um, you know, I, 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 I've tried to provide information that I'm interested in, you know, because things that motivate me. And I try to think about what you might be interested in and, and, and bring that to you. And I scour the earth doing that, and I'm still doing it. I've got some great stuff coming up, you know, in terms of the people that I'm talking to. I'm so pleased that they'll come on and talk to you about these things. I bought, and I'm looking over at the books I bought in the last three months, and I, I hope my wife is not listening because, you know, I've had to hide some of them because, you know, she, you know, we get ready to move into our forever home, and she doesn't want to pack up all these books. Matter of fact, she says, i got to pack up my books, which is not that bad because some of them are in storage, and uh, we'll be getting the movers to do that. But I've bought maybe, let me see, one, two, three, four, five. I've easily bought, oh, man, at least 20 to 30 books in the last three months. And people always ask me, they say, have you read all these all those books? As you heard, I have over 1,000 books. And I said, well, let me ask you a question, Okay. Uh, if you have an album, back when there were albums, I don't know if buy, people buy CDs anymore. I guess they do. But an album, have you listened to every song on that on that album? Probably not. I know when I was in uh, the market to buy albums and CDs and stuff like that, I didn't listen to every song on the album. Maybe two or three at most. Some albums have you know all kinds of hits on it. 
And so I say all that to say that I buy a book and I mostly buy, matter of fact, for the most part, I only buy nonfiction. And nonfiction, you know, books about information. I want to learn something. And, uh, you know, with a lot of nonfiction books, you know, you can jump in at a chapter, chapter three or chapter two or chapter seven, whatever, and you may not miss anything. So there are certain chapters that I want to read in certain books, you know, because uh, if I could, I'd spend all day reading. That's honest. I would spend all day. I just like to get information. I, I like to know stuff, you know. And, and so because if you don't know anything, how can you have a conversation with anybody? And that's another problem. That's one of the curses of reading so much is that most people don't read like I do. And so if I'm talking about something, they don't, they don't, they don't read as much as I do, which that, that, that's fine. I have no problem with that. And, you know, they don't go to movies and plays and all that. But anyway, so you got to have something to talk about. What are you going to talk about? You know, and this is a sidebar because um, it's a pet peeve of mine because the, the art of a good conversation has been lost because people don't have a, you know, a body of knowledge or things that they've read recent that they can discuss, like the, the, the you know, the, 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 the latest book they've read, an article they've read, a movie they've been to, a concert or a play or whatever, you know, so anyway. Okay, all right, I digress. But anyway, thank you so much for listening. Please, you know, shoot me an email. Tell me how you're liking the show, Charles Ross at Outlook.com. Or give me a text at 404-272-4633. If you want to get your financial life in order, then, you know, reach out to me. But tell other people about the podcast because I want it to grow. I want to be informative. I think I got – not only do I think I have something to say, but I think my, my guests always do. And so I want you to, to appreciate that. So as I leave you, you have a great whatever evening, morning, afternoon, because I know a lot of people download or listen to the, to the cast later on after it's broadcast, and um, I thank you so much. Take care, and uh, I'm going to leave you out with Barry White and Rhapsody in White. Mm-hmm.